wanted to um, take a couple minutes and talk a, a bit about lament. In, in our culture, <clears throat> we are much more inclined to pursue things that are exciting, which is understandable, um, feel good. However, I, for one, am grateful that Scripture doesn't leave us um, to our own devices when it comes to difficult times. That the Word of God, in a number of different places, gives us models of how we are to wrestle with with our struggles and express them appropriately and receive answers. Um, I know that the Book of Lamentation is not everybody's favorite bedtime reading. It's frankly pretty depressing. However, in the midst of lamentation, you have the the author, which is Jeremiah, pausing and saying, you know, God, if it weren't for you, I would be toast. I don't know if you ever feel that way. I certainly do. And um, for us who have made a commitment to the Lord and live lives that are based and confidence that he's there with us. There is the expectation that when we cry out to God that he will respond. Today, tomorrow, the day after, but he will respond. And so you can understand the feeling of a person, in this case a Jewish person, who cried out to God and felt that there was no return. And I'm thinking specifically of a um, a cellar in Cologne, Germany, uh, where thousands of Jewish people hid during the uh, World War II, that there was an inscription that was discovered not long after the end of World War II and scrawled on it by some anonymous person were, were these words. I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when not feeling it. I believe in God, even when he is silent. I know that for all of us, that's an issue, a feeling that we struggle with. And what's ironic is that here in Scripture, the portion that Judy read to us, we find exactly those same words reflected by the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why are you so far from saving me? Now, we believe that the author here um, was David, 
We don't know exactly what took place in this particular situation, but we know that this guy was chased from pillar to post for 13 years. It seemed like the moment God called him that all hell uh, blew up in his face after he took care of Goliath. And for 13 years, uh, he was being chased from pillar to post by Saul's posses. A couple of examples, you know, he is playing his guitar, well, his lyre, and uh, he's having a good time, and all of a sudden, Saul goes mishugi and takes a spear and throws it at him and tries to, tries to skewer him. That happened a couple of times. Then Saul sent uh, posses to, to chase him, and uh, a group of priests helped David. And when Saul found out, he had 85 of them executed. In fact, things got so terrible for Saul, that, uh, for, for David, that he, was, he took refuge with the Philistines, with the enemies of Israel. And the king of the Philistine, Achish, was saying, that his people were saying, what are you doing having this guy? And Psalm 34 tells us a bit about David's feeling, but they said to him, you got to get, get rid of this guy, and, and uh, is it not, uh, don't we have enough Meshuggi people here among us, the Philistines? Do we need a crazy Hebrew? So David acted not so, and he's spitting and uh, talking gibberish, and they, they chased him out of here. You can imagine his low point. And so you can understand that whatever took place here in Psalm 22, you know that this was one of the low points of his life. And it's not only the circumstances that were the low points, it was also his emotion. And you know, sometimes things get intense circumstantially. They get really bad. And we don't have the internal mechanism, the resources to handle it. And so we take a hit. And that's apparently what's, what's happening here. David is saying that God has totally disappeared from the scene. Now remember that this guy is the one that cranked out most of the book of Psalms. He would sit there and come up with these special Psalms. And, and uh, it seemed like God had ignored him. Um, in fact, one of the words that David uses is not just groaning. You know, when you think of groaning, that can be a relatively mild word like, I... I'm having a tough day today. No, the, the, the Hebrew word for groaning, sha'aga, is a word that is often used to talk, to refer to lions roaring. In other words, David is screaming out to God. He's desperate. Because apparently what, whatever it was that took place here, felt like a perfect storm out there and also emotionally he was not doing well 
And yet, as you read this, what is ironic as you read this, you see that David is struggling emotionally and spiritually to come to terms with whatever is going on. First of all, he's brutally honest with God. And this is the bizarre thing, folks. Sometimes we feel that God can't handle it. You know what I'm saying? We're going through tough times, and, and we need to sugarcoat it and say, reflect to God something that is not quite honest because it's not the believing thing to do. And so we say, okay, God, I'm, I'm struggling. I know you're around. It could be worse. No, you know, what you have here is David expressing his complete and utter, utter honesty, excuse me. And yet, somehow what you have here is almost a back and forth between God, I'm struggling, I'm having a hard time. Yet, verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. In other words, in the midst of David feeling like he's down in the pit, there's something in him about his relationship with God, the knowledge of who God is, that says, you know, God is somehow in control. And that for us has become, I hate to use the word mantra because that has such negative connotations, but... A phrase that we use that encapsulates for us as a congregational mishpacha our conviction that all that we go through, up in, uh, uh, good and bad, that God is always sovereignly in control. David say, uh, is saying, verse 3, you are enthroned as the Holy One. And part of the picture is not just the knowledge of God in, in a uh, spiritual theological sense, but in a relational sense. His personal, intimate relationship with God. You, verse 9, you brought me out of the womb. In other words, God, you have been there for me at all kinds of times in my life. Beginning with the time that I came hurtling out of the birth canal. And yet, again, he comes back to, God, I'm having a hard time. And I wanted to go through those somewhat uh, vivid and almost depressing verses. And, and if you would just kind of skip along with me, verse 11, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there's no one to help. David is not being neurotic here, you know, like sometimes people do when they're waking up and they're feeling blue and they're saying, uh, no one is interested in, in wanting to help me. This is reality. Verse 19, Lord, do not be far from me. Come quickly. In the Hebrew word there, chusha, I want to ask you to spit it out has the sense of, God, come quickly. Don't take your sweet time. Come quickly. Hurry to help me. 
And what you notice is that there are no qualifying words. He doesn't say, Lord, um, if it is your will, and if it, this is part of your plan, then would you please consider coming? You know, and I wanted to take off a bit on, on this subject because sometimes we lack security in our relationship with God and it seems as if we have to qualify our, our special prayer request to him because we have to say, God, if it is your will, would you do such and such? Well, the reality is if you and I are committed to doing God's will, God's plan, then do we have to tell him over and over again, God, I'm interested in doing your plan. He knows that. And when we have a need, it is right and proper for us to come with holy chutzpah and say, God, I need for you to come through. You see that with, with all the intercessors in scriptures who have a relationship with God and who know how to speak to God and who do that respectfully, and yet they do it boldly. You don't, you don't see them saying, um, if it is your will, God, get me out of this, but if you want me to get nuked, I'm okay with that. Because we feel that that may be the more spiritual kind of prayer. God knows us, folks. He knows our hearts. He knows when we are willing to be obedient to him. And when we are in particular need, it's okay. Chusha, Lord, come, come through. I, I need you desperately. Rescue me, verse 21, from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And by the way, there... If you have a translation like the NIV, it's a little different in Hebrew. It literally means, you have answered me, which is kind of odd because you wonder, if David is crying out to God, why does he say, you have answered me? So, of course, you can understand that people would want to tease that out and wonder about that. Well... It's possible that somehow in the midst of all the struggling that David is going through with God, that there's kind of a sense in, in his heart and mind that as far as God is concerned, that's already a done deal. Again, David describes what's going on with using very vivid pictures. Bulls have surrounded me, roaring lions opened their mouths, you know, think about the, the metaphor of, of people um, wanting to have that kind of attack on the servant of God, a person of God, and so on. And then there is description here that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I want to read it. Uh, we didn't have uh, Judy read it before, but verses 14 to 18 I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength has dried up like potsherd. 
and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have in, encircled me. They have pierced me, or can be translated um, like, like a lion. They uh, attacked my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots from my clothing. As you look at this, what comes to mind is a description of what takes place when a person is crucified. And this is somewhat grim, but I, I wanted to take a moment and describe it that when a person is hanging on a cross, part of what happens is that very, very quickly there is a massive dislocation of their bones, particularly their shoulders and, and their wrists and their elbows. Part of what happens is that they are not capable of breathing properly because they are fixed, their rib cage is fixed, and so their breathing, uh, their, ex uh, their ability to exhale is very limited, which means that they are not able to get proper amount of oxygen. By the way, when you look at the gospel accounts, the four accounts of Yeshua's death, you see that uh, his words are very brief, very pithy. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, give a much of a description because he doesn't have the oxygen, the ability to, to talk much. And you can understand that the heart pumps a lot more vigorously in order to compensate, in order to get more oxygen. And after a while, the heart gives out. He experiences dehydration and so on. Um, this is basically the kind of picture that the psalmist, David, is talking about without really knowing what he is saying. I believe that this is a prophetic description on his part as he looks forward beyond his life circumstances and sees someone else who would experience uh, severe suffering persecution. And um, he is envisioning a very gruesome kind of death, excruciating pain. which obviously as you read the gospel account you see that this is so uh, so fitting um, and like David here Yeshua on the ninth hour cried in a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which is Aramaic meaning my God my God why have you forsaken me And you may be aware of the fact that uh, there is an artist named Rick Winicky who did a sculpture garden in which he has uh, a series of scenes um, with Yeshua crucified, but you don't see him really crucified. You see him uh, stretched out in, like a person who is crucified in, a, in Jerusalem stone, very white stone, and he is having conversation 
with a Holocaust survivor. And there are a number of these scenes based on Yeshua's seven last words. And um, I would encourage you, if you're able to look it, um, look it up, it's called The Fountain of Tears. But it's very profound because it reflects a basic understanding on the part of Jewish people, uh, particular intellectuals and artists, that Yeshua is the epitome of Jewish suffering. In fact, in the 30s, there was a Jewish artist named Mark Chagall who did a picture of Yeshua on the cross, but a very Jewish version of Yeshua on the cross, not with chubby little angels surrounding him, but he was covered uh, with a prayer shawl, and all around him were scenes of Jewish persecution, Jews running, uh, f clutching their, their Torahs, Torah scrolls and the synagogues burning, all, and those scenes are all around Yeshua, and, and Chagall's point was that Yeshua, in his mind, represents the epitome of Jewish suffering. You know, and, and that came to mind. Some of you know I have a personal connection to the Holocaust because my father was a Holocaust survivor. And uh, this week, a friend of mine uh, arranged for me to be one of the people who were interviewed, um, second generation of survivors. And this was on uh, Christian radio. And we talked for about an hour about experiences. And I have to tell you, I got off the phone. This was phone interview. And uh, I was one sorry puppy because I thought to myself, you know, I thought... Lord, that you have taken me through the depths of the, f of the feelings about the Holocaust. And, and here we're going to have a Shoah uh, service, and then we're going to have the March of Remembrance on Sunday. Do I really have to go through this again? And as I sat reflecting, I sensed that the Spirit of God took me to Psalm 22, and then to Matthew 27. And the message simply was, Yeshua suffered infinitely more. And whatever suffering my father experienced and I experienced as, as his son, like other second generation of survivors, it all dwarfs. It is all dwarfed by the experience of Yeshua and his suffering. That, by the way, is what the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, that Yeshua had to be made like us so that he can be a merciful high priest. He had to be made like his brothers and sisters. This is in Hebrews chapter 2. So that he can be effective in being our priest. So that when we come to him, we recognize a basic reality that he knows exactly what we're going through. He knows exactly what our suffering. So that when we're going through experiences like being that which is <coughs> described by the psalmist, we don't have to feel like, God, you have no clue what I'm going through.
And I, I don't know about you. In this world, with all the craziness and, and all the upheaval that is going on, you know, you live long enough, you experience some of it. It is comforting and it provides security to know that God is very much aware of who we are, where we've been, what we've going through. And that when we come to him, we don't need to try and airbrush our experiences, but we can do what the psalmist did here and, and lay it out and be brutally honest with God, respectfully honest, but brutally honest. And that's part of how we process our pain and our grief and our struggles. We, we bring it before God, but yet we don't stop there because we pause and reflect on who God is and where he has been for us. We reflect on our relationship and how God has shown himself faithful. And even though at a particular moment, we, we sense what seems to be a silence. We know that the Lord is very much there, very much engaged. And what grab, grabbed me as I was reading this psalm was the fact that after the psalmist talks about, God, they're coming to take bites out of me, and if you don't come quickly, I'm, I'm going to be nuked after all of that. We see some of the most profound worship statements in all of scriptures on the part of this guy who's struggling. I would encourage you to read the rest of the psalm, particularly verses 22 to 31, which is about a third of the psalm where the psalmist is saying, all of you learn to recognize and praise God. And I wanted to leave you with this statement. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. In other words, regardless of circumstances that we go through, we have the confidence that God is somehow engaged, that God is somehow working situations in our life. And that he has plans for the good for us. And that part of the picture for us in the struggle as we engage with him and struggle with him is to keep coming back to who he is, where he has been for us, and to simply say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you will bring me through this particular crisis or these particular sets of crises this um, perfect storm that you'll bring me through it and that you would use it for the good in my life. So for us who have the confidence in who the Lord is, we know that. Let's remember that there are hundreds of thousands of those who have suffered and who do not have that confidence. Let's pray as scripture tells us, that the Lord would comfort them. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Let's pray.
Lord God, we praise you. And we thank you, Lord, that you're intimately aware with our pain. That you know all that we go through, all that we have gone through. We thank you, Lord, that nothing is hidden from you. Thank you, Lord, that you don't expect us to airbrush our situations. That you welcome us to come and lay our concerns and our struggles at your feet in honesty. And also recognizing just who you are. Lord, today we give you honor and glory to, on this Yom HaShoah that you are faithful to your covenant promises to your people Israel. Thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to your promises to us. We bless you, Lord. We love you and we worship you. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.